It's the Americhicks with Kim Munson, the most important story. That seems to me like government is establishing a religion. The latest in politics and world affairs. If you give people rights, women's rights, gay rights, whatever, there can't be equal rights if there's special rights. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. Surveys show that, that people still really prefer freedom versus force. It's the Americhicks dissecting issues as right versus wrong. Instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation. I am Kim Munson, and I am thrilled to have in studio with me my friend Ben Martin. This is our our Federalist Papers show, which is brought to us by the Harris family. It's great to have you here, Ben. I'm great. I'm happy to be here, too. Thanks, Kim. Great to be here. And we're going to be really kind of looking at the guts of the Federalist Papers today. So we're going to focus the whole show on the Federalist Papers because we felt that we needed the time to do that. Yeah, thank you. I think it's it's really important because this is a segment where we're going to speak about more Federalist Papers. We have more Federalist Papers to cover than at any other segment, any other program we have. And uh, just as everybody knows, as we look at these issues, we look at them as freedom versus freedom force, force versus freedom. And I think that was really what the, the founders did as well. Oh, they did. Yeah, yeah the four- I, I agree with you 100%. And and we had to control, and it had to be controlled by the people. Uh, they Publius famously says in the Federalist Papers, he said, you know, that the 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 reason of the people alone must control the government, and the government must control the passions of the people. So that's the... That's that's the relationship we have to have here. The the people's reason has to control the government, and the government is there to control the passions of the people. And, uh, you know, it's such a unique idea, and this idea of uh, the Declaration, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and those rights are really protected in the Constitution. To get the Constitution ratified, we just celebrated uh, Constitution Week, to get the Constitution ratified the Federalist Papers were written by three people, by John Jay, uh, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton, these essays to make the case for ratification of the the Constitution. So we're going to delve into that in just a moment. Before we do that, though, again, we look at these issues as freedom versus force, force versus freedom. Socialism ultimately comes down to force. And if something is a really good idea, you shouldn't have to force that. We are seeing the socialization uh, through rules and regulations of of control of our transportation, education, energy, housing, water, all these things that uh, help make our lives better. And we need to be watching that and pushing back on that. Uh, But want to say thank you to producer Steve, the team, Zach, Patty, Keith, and Charlie for your support and your good work. And to you listeners out there, thank you for listening. Each of you are valued. You're treasured. You've got uh, a purpose today. It's drive for excellence. Take care of heart, soul, mind, and body. And again, thank you to the Harris family for the sponsorship of the Federalist Papers. So our quote for today, this is one of Ben's favorites, and this is Publius. Uh, So it was James Madison, though. James Madison here, yes. In the Federalist Papers, he says, the important distinction so well understood in America between a constitution established by the people and unalterable by the government and a law established by the government and alterable by the government seems to have been little understood and less observed in any other country. They were they were heavy thinkers, weren't they? <laughs> they were way ahead of their time. But they, to be way ahead of their time, they had to go back and find all the lessons from past time to get to this point. And 
and they're universal. They're universal truths, and they they have guided us for all this time. And as uh, Calvin Coolidge once said at the 150th anniversary of our Declaration of Independence, he said that uh, he said to live under the American Constitution is the greatest political privilege that has ever been afforded to the human race. So that is why we are doing this show. That is why we are doing Vino and Veritas, is so that we understand it and know it, can can communicate about it, and we can protect it. That's right. So I do have a little funny here. Are you ready for this, Steve? (laughs) I live for this. I live for it. You know that. Okay. Now, you know that I I many times go to the Internet to try to find quotes and to try to find humor. And this one I thought was really important. It's by Abraham Lincoln. He says, the problem with stealing quotes off the Internet is you never know if they are genuine. (laughs) Did he really say that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's jump in here to to the Federalist Papers. Ben Martin, we're we're in the meat of it here. Yes, we are. And uh, so, uh, you know, where are we going to go? So last Last week or last month when we talked about this, the Federalist Papers, we first talked about, I told you, the 51, the separation of powers is the nexus in the in all of the Federalist Papers. It connects the principles, the general principles that we talked about in the first part of the Federalist Papers to the specific elements of government in the second part. And so this is the first time we're going to be talking about the first specific element of government. And of course, we talk about the representation in our legislature, because as the Federalist understood from all of history, that the legislature is the key, and that is really the the closest part of the government to the people. Mm-hmm. So it's, and it's the, what they call the most popular form of the government, and it can also be the most dangerous. That's why it's talked about first in our, declar- in our Constitution and first of the specific pieces of government in our Federalist Papers. So we're going to talk about that, and so we start uh, with, with that today, and Federalist 52 is the start of this, and, and we cover 52 through 65, or through 66 in this session that we're going to talk about. And that covers, first of all, the House of the House of the Representatives. Then it talks about the congressional control of elections. And then the last part, 62 through 66, talks about the Senate. So that that's what the whole breakdown is today. And so with number 52, Federalist 52, it, Publius starts his examination of the specific instruments of the proposed Constitution, and that in here that we start with is the House of Representatives, and we'll go to the Senate, and then after that we'll be followed with the executives and the judiciary. We're not going to talk about that today, but that'll be in upcoming okay. pr- programs that we have today. So 52 is also the first of 10 presentations or for essays that are devoted to describing and explaining the constitutional provisions and the features of the House of Representatives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so 52 talks about in general. So we're going to go through some of these pretty fast and some of them we're going to try to focus on a little bit more. Okay. And so 52 talks about the qualifications of the electors. You talked about uh, we talked about that in a program last week mm-hmm. that I heard you talking about. We talk about also the qualifications of the members. Mm-hmm. Great. 
and we talk about the terms of office. Okay, we all know that the qualifications for electors for the voting members for the House of Representatives was the same as the electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. So that was a that was a really good thing that the framers did. So they didn't have to specify that and make it different for every every one of the states because you know the states are very independent and they didn't like being told that so he just said it so that it would be for the most the the the, the most popular uh, for the house of representatives you know so yeah. every state had their own qualifications for electors and then for the qualification for the members we all know that you had to be 25 years old to be a, a member of the house of representatives you had to be seven years a citizen of the united states and you had to be a resident of the state in which you were elected at the time of election. The terms of office were two years, and that was one of the things that some people were really worried about because they thought that two years was too much time because in most of the states it was one year or in some places half a year. And so they thought that that was one way that you could control your elected representatives was to shorten the amount of time mm -hmm. that they had in office. So it was really hard for them to tell that. And the one big thing that helped that be sold was that when you're a state elector or a state representative, or state legislature, you have less amount of information to know because you're only concentrating on your state. When you're a federal representative, you have more to learn. And that was one of the bases that they used for this was to say, you know, it takes more time to be a good legislature when you're talking more about the government than just okay. about the state. So, Ben, just a quick question, though. Uh, you said that, that they determined that you had to be 25 years of age. Right. And I, I would submit to you that the a 25-year-old back in revolutionary times had had a Much, whole bunch yes. more life experiences than right. we had, and yet they thought it was important that they be at least 25. I mean, they were young kids as they were fighting the Revolutionary War. It's Correct. interesting that they, they, it seems like they wanted some maturity. They did want maturity, and that's why it goes up as we talk about, we'll talk about, we can talk about it now, 25 years, of course, for the House of Representatives. And they only had two years of, of uh, term of office. Then you next went up to the Senate, and they had 30 years, and then the president with 35 years. And at that time, it's not like we're going, we have kids going to colleges, and they're in these protective zones, mm -hmm. and they can't be offended anymore. These guys were fighting wars. They were raising crops. They had jobs. They had real jobs that had to support their lives. And so it was, there were... There was no government safety net. There was a lot more... Yes, that's true. And there was a lot more responsibility, individual responsibility. And that's what our whole country is built upon. Mm -hmm. If you read, we still hold these truths by Matthew Spaulding. When he talks about the, the difference, the, the number, we have like nine basic principles in, in our government, our concept of government. And the overarching, the overarching rule, the overarching theme and the foundational principle is liberty. 
And as I've said many, many times before, liberty is the responsible exercise of freedom. We talk about freedom, but really what, we, what our founders and our framers talked about was liberty. Liberty is the responsible exercise of freedom, and responsibility, as we talk about here, was first coined in the use of the convention and the use of the Federalist Papers. So that's an American word. And I do find it very interesting that there is a movement in America today to push the voting age down to 16. And a 16-year-old of today generally does not have the life experiences of a 16-year-old back in revolutionary times or in Civil War, World War I, World War II. And uh, so I, I question that movement. I do, too. I mean, we do have some really good, we do have some really good individuals out there sure. that are young. But for the most part, for the general society, they, they don't have any idea what real responsibilities are. There's I, some growing up to do, for yeah. sure. So, uh, Ben Martin, let's go to break. When we come back, we will continue our conversation about the, the guts of the Federalist Papers here. Uh, this is Kim Munson. We'll be right back. At Hooters, you can watch the games with all your buddies. And when your buddies are the world-famous Hooters girls, there's always plenty of ice-cold beer and those craveable wings that'll knock your taste buds into next Tuesday. Hooters girls know plenty about football, but we really know the fans who live for it. So hang out with all your buddies all season long at Hooters, your official hangout for game day. Catch all the games at Hooters and enjoy a butter Bud Light draft with 10 boneless wings, just $10. Dine for two with the pitcher and nachos, just $20. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect private property rights. Karen Levine believes in homeownership. Because of Karen's love of dogs, Karen volunteers with GER, Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, helping Golden Retrievers find their forever homes. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by Kim Munson. Call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with Remax Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. The Battle of Yorktown. 1781. Welcome back. I'm Kim Munson. Let's have a conversation with Ben Martin. He is in studio. We are doing our Federalist Papers show. And uh, it's in honor of Vino and Veritas, which is our study of Federalist Papers. And this show is brought to you by the Harris family. Greatly appreciate that. They care deeply about the American idea. So they, thank you to them for that. Ben Martin, let's continue on. We were talking about the House of Representatives and how it's being explained in the Federalist Papers. Right. So we talked about last time in our, in our last ones in, in 52 and 53, uh, we talk pretty much about the terms. Two years. Two years was really kind of strange for the framers, not for the framers, but for the inhabitants of the other states, because most of the time they had their electors or their legislators in service for six months to a year. A year was probably the longest they wanted. So 
So not like 30, 40 years like we have now. Not like what we have now, (laughs) that's for sure. So then we start with 55, and 55 is a really important Federalist paper. And it begins a series of four papers which deal with the four major criticisms leveled at the House of Representatives regarding its composition and capacity to represent the people. So the first of these charges is this paper... Uh, is this first of the four. This paper is concerned with the question of size and whether the House initially to consist of only 65 members is a safe depository of the public interest. Now, the framers understood that we should have a limited number of people, not this great mass of people for representatives. Because it would be ineffective then. It would be ineffective and it would be, it would literally be a mob. And they have a great quote for that. And it's really important that we remember this as we talk about that, as we think about our government. And this is an important quote that I think is really important. He said, and and this is one of the few statements that Publius makes with his relationship between the virtues and Republican government. And I think it's really good. So we start with this, the number of electors or the number of representatives in the legislature. So the number of legislatures ought ought at most to be kept within a certain limit in order to avoid the confusion and intemperance of a multitude in all very numerous assemblies of whatever character composed, passion, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Had every Athenian citizen been Socrates, every Athenian assembly would have still been a mob. And wow. Isn't that great? And to think about that, and that's the way they felt. So they were really, really, they were concerned about keeping it to a limit. Is you wanted it just to be enough to represent the people properly and to understand their constituencies. But if it got any more than that, and we'll talk about that again in another one of the papers coming up. And, and he says this, and he talks again about virtue, and he says, As there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. Republican government presupposes the existence of these qualities in a higher degree than any other form. Wow, so they looked at everything, and now they're making the case for this Republican form of government. That's it. That's exactly right. So we'll go on to number 56, which is the second charge, and that is the House will be too small to possess a due knowledge of the interest in the constituents. And that's where, again, where they said, okay, we're going to add the the second year, so two years to give them the opportunity to learn those the things that they need to know. But they also said in that, which is very important, it's another extract from the Federalist Papers, what are the objectives of federal legislation? Those which are of most importance and which seem to most require local knowledge are commerce, taxation, and the militia. And so they feel like with two years, they they will be able to learn that. And they won't be too small to represent the people of the United States. Well, they were so forward-thinking. I mean, think about Those are still the things that people are concerned about today. Absolutely. Is our commerce, our economy, our personal economy, our uh, taxes, and then, of course, our our defense. You learn, you know, you learn wisdom from studying 
studying history and the lessons that were learned by that, that all the mistakes that were made by by human beings mm-hmm. by and then you learn the things that they did really really well and and that's why we call what what they did the wisdom is the knowledge of things that do not change and you only learn that by going back and by studying looking, by studying history and that's what our federalists did to a great extent now i don't know if we have time in this session before we end but i 57 is the next one I want to go to. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. Okay, so I I want to tell you that 57 is one of my first favorites of the Federalist Papers. When I was first studying the Federalist Papers, I looked at this and said, this is something we all need to know. So in, in 57, we talk about the third of the four charges. And this one is in the third charge, it says that those elected to the House of Representatives will have the least sympathy with the mass of people and will be most likely to aim at an ambitious sacrifice of the many to the aggrandizement of the few. Now, that, that kind of sounds really strange, yeah. but, but it's not at all. And it's actually what has happened, which the, the, the framers said that can never happen. And so I just want to read a couple of of quotes here. The aim of every political constitution is or ought to be to first obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom, as I talked about before, to discern, and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society. And in the next place, to take the most effectual precautions of keeping them virtuous while they continue to hold their public trust. The most effectual one, as we talked about earlier, in such a limitation on the terms of appointment as will maintain a proper responsibility to the people. So they talk about that, and, th- th- you know, that's a concept, that's a foundational concept of the Republican form of government. Well, and they, I think what I'm hearing you say is they never thought that people would, would uh, become a uh, representative and be there for, you know, decades. Right. You look at what's happening right now. Okay, they, they said, and I want to read this, and it says, it's so good. It says, I will add as a fifth circumstance in the situation of the House of Representatives, restraining them from oppressive measures, meaning favoring somebody other than the general people, and that they can make no law Listen to this. They can make no law which will not have its full operation on themselves and their friends as well as the great mass of the society. This has always been deemed as one of the strongest bonds by which human policy can connect the rulers and the people together. It makes perfect sense that if somebody, uh, if it's a city council, if it is county commissioners, if it's our state legislature, our governor, Uh, the House of Representatives, all the way up, if they are putting in a rule, a regulation, a law, an ordinance, then it should apply to everyone, particularly the ones that are making the rules. That's right. So Congress has a different set for, for their retirement program. Congress has a different set of, of rules and, and uh, privileges for their medical, their medical program. You know, it's not, they don't have Medicare when they retire. They don't have Social Security when they retire. They get this unbelievable set of, of benefits. Benefits. It's just, it's unbelievable. And it, it just defies this. And this is what, this is what should scare everybody. And this last part, if it be asked, what is to restrain, restrain the House of Representatives from make, making legal discriminations in favor of themselves as a particular class of society? 
I answer. The genius of the whole system, the nature of just and constitutional laws, and above all, the vigilant and manly spirit which actuates the people of America, a spirit which, a spirit which nourishes freedom and in return is nourished by it. If, and this is the caution here, if this spirit shall ever be so far debased as to tolerate a law not obligatory or obligatory on the legislature as well as the people, the people would be prepared to tolerate anything but liberty. Oh, my gosh. And that was uh, over 200 and some years ago that they realized that. Right. Okay, Ben Martin, let's go to break. I can see why 57 initially really spoke to you. That's Federalist 57. Uh, So this is Kim Munson. This is our Federalist Papers show. Thank you to the Harris family for sponsoring this. And Ben Martin, thank you for being here. I'm learning so much. We're going to go to break. We'll continue on. Hey, before we go to break, we have Jason McBride with Presidential Wealth Management on the line. Jason, welcome. Hey, good morning, Kim. And uh, you met Ben Martin just recently, right? Well, I did. I've heard him on your show several times, and uh, I think we might have uh, interacted a little bit inadvertently on the show, but I hadn't met him in person. Uh, He gave quite a talk at the Douglas County Republicans meeting the other morning, Uh, very interesting, very compelling, uh, about why you should understand why you believe what you believe and why it's very, very important to understand what the founders were trying to do, uh, how they were uh, trying to put together the Constitution based on uh, values, and that without those values and understanding it, uh, it means much, much less. And that meant a lot to me. His uh, uh, talk was very good. It was entirely too short. They were giving him the hook. It seemed like almost from the minute he started, which I thought was unfortunate, but uh, very compelling speaker. Always enjoy listening to Ben, and it was a pleasure to, to uh, meet him in person and talk to him a little bit. Well, uh, most definitely. And, and you mentioned this, that we need to understand why we believe what we believe. So that's why we do this show um, the, the, on the Federalist Papers, which is brought to you by the Harris family. And we're so grateful for that and grateful to have been in studio. But the other thing is, Jason, is uh, you're a valued partner of me, but you're also a valued partner of Vino and Veritas. Uh, and uh, the more people that understand the Federalist Papers, and as you mentioned, you know, it's, it was for ratification of uh, the U.S. Constitution. The more the people that understand that, then we can protect this important idea, the American idea. Well, I think you're right, Kim, and uh, coming to Vino and Veritas has been an eye-opening experience for me. Um, to understand that the Federalist Papers were kind of the marketing campaign put out by the founders to try to convince, you know, Americans to ratify the Constitution. Uh, the way Dr. Cranawitter does it, Kim, you almost feel like you were right in the room with uh, Hamilton and Jefferson and Adams as they were debating and discussing uh, some of the laws and rules they were trying to put into place and what unintended consequences they might have or might not have. And you really come to the understanding that uh, that the, the, the line that says, in order to form a more perfect union, 
really means something. They realized they weren't going to form a perfect union and that there would be uh, always debates, but if they could form a more perfect union, that was a good thing, and I think that's key. Well, it is really key. And this Sunday night, September 29th, will be the Vino and Veritas in Castle Rock. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there. But this is a very important one where Dr. Cranawitter talks about slavery and what the founders did about it. And uh, so people can sign up. Uh, there is a, a tuition fee uh, to to attend, and then, of course, you can just get what you want to eat or drink. Just pay for that as well. It's at Colorado Cork and Keg. Uh, go to my website and uh, let me know if you are interested in attending this Vino and Veritas in Castle Rock this uh, Sunday night because it is going to be absolutely powerful, Jason. That's right. So go to chickspresidential.com or americhicks.com to sign up for Vino and Veritas. And, uh, yep, I think it's going to be a fantastic event. Kim should be pretty full. Uh, For sure. So sign up today, and, uh, Jason, we will talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Kim. Have a great show. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. Are you looking for news, not propaganda? Ready for a news source you can actually trust? How about a news site that doesn't want to sell you a subscription? Visit CompleteColorado.com to see all the latest news from around Colorado. Complete Colorado's staff scours news sources from around the state and nation to bring you only the top stories that affect you right here in our great state. Updated three times a day, CompleteColorado.com has full-time reporters doing original investigations and reporting like newspapers used to do, as well as opinion and political commentary from a variety of Colorado voices. And CompleteColorado.com is the only place to read columnist Mike Rosen. Always fresh content, always free, always informed. CompleteColorado.com, your complete source for Colorado news. This week at the 88 Drive-In Theater, enjoy three scary movies under the stars, all for only $9. It, It, Chapter 2, and Scary Stories. Admission includes all three features. Monday through Thursday, don't forget the very popular pizza special. And new on the menu, try a churro with a cup of hot cocoa. The 88 Drive-In Theater is open every night of the week, so get directions now at the 88 Drive-In Facebook page or 88drivein.net. You'd like to get in touch with one of Kim Munson's sponsors, but you can't recall their phone number. Find a full list of advertising partners on americhicks.com. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. I'm keeping the bed warm while her husband is away. Welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation about the Federalist Papers. Okay, let's keep going. It's We're great st- to have you here, Ben Martin, Thank so let's you. continue on. Thank you so much. We're just talking about the House of Representatives and what I told you about starting back with 55. We had four of the essays that were going to be charges against the the numbers of the people in the House of Representatives. And so the fourth charge here is in 58, and it says, and that's to go back to 55 when we talked about limiting this. Mm-hmm. So the framers or Publius are talking about this one more time. It says the fourth and final charge that the number of members in the House of Representatives will not be augmented from time to time as the progress of population may demand. Mm-hmm. And he answers that very thoroughly in, in here. But the point that he makes in this, as he's doing this, the caution that he throws out to the American people again, going back to 55, that's what's so important. They reinforce the things that they said before. So listen to this. 
the people can never err more than in supporting that by multiplying the representatives beyond a certain limit. We talked about that before in 55. They, they think they strengthen the barrier against a government of the few. Experience will forever admonish them that, at the, on the contrary, after securing a sufficient number for the purpose of safety, of local information, and as diffusive sympathy with the whole society, they will, con- they will con- counteract their own views by every addition to their representation. The, the continents of the government may become more democratic. The appearance of government may become more democratic. But the soul that animates it will be more oligarchic. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I mean, the things that they said and the way they said them, it's hard to believe. Okay. So then we go to 57 concerning the number of Congress to regulate the election of members. Now, 59 that we're talking about right now, 59 through 61, talk about the regulation of the elections. And the biggest thing that they talked about, they talked about in there was that the, the, you know, the federal government did not set a date for elections. And then the, the framers talked about it uh, very, very well in there. And they, they said that uh, it, it's, it, is, it's, it is not uh, pretended that the rights would ever be used for the exclusion of any state to share in representation the interest of all. And it, and it said that uh, to do this, no better answer can be given on this, this fixed in the Constitution for a date. They said, you know, we're in New York right now. In New York doesn't have this in their state constitution, a fixed date. And they said, you know, if we look at all the other constitutions of the states, none of them have a fixed date. So why are you complaining? Really, why are you complaining about this? No better answer can be given that it was a matter which might safely be instructed to the legislature's discretion. And that if a time had been appointed... It might upon experiment, see, they didn't have any experience in this, had been found less convenient than any other time. So they said in our Constitution that the state legislatures could control the election, but that, and that, that's the way we are now, but Congress could take that back anytime they wanted to and set a national time. And so they experimented a lot with mm-hmm. that before we came upon the times that we have right now. So they realized, and that's what's so interesting about the Constitution, they realized it wasn't perfect. And so there was ways that it could be changed. And if they, what I'm seeing a theme is if they, you know, after looking at everything, they felt that they shouldn't make that hard and fast decision, they, they waited. They, they, yeah, they left themselves room. And they, by doing that, they're saying that Congress can change that at any time. And those are things that they should be able to change. Mm-hmm. And we have to... We, you know, we have to trust them enough to do those things. The other things we said, you know, we can't change. And like that's we can't change the real guts of the Constitution. That has to be done by amendment. Mm-hmm. And amendment is a big thing. It takes two thirds to recommend it and three quarters of, of all the state legislatures or the Congresses or, or the state assemblies that they have put together to pass anything like that. Three quarters, 75 percent. That's a pretty high bar. 
So we, we talk about that, and then if we can, we go into the, the next part, 62 through 66, and that's talking about the Senate. Okay. And the Senate talks about, in the first one, it talks about the Anti-Federalists viewed the Senate with mixed emotion. The vast majority favored a second chamber, and most were pleased that the states were accorded equal representation there. Yet many voiced strong criticisms of the powers, composition, and the relationship to the executive branch of the Senate. Beginning with this one, 862, Publius devotes five essays to answering the most common criticisms of the Senate and to pointing out what role he anticipates it will play in providing for the stable government. That's the one big thing that's considered the, the key for the Senate was this that would provide stability in the government free from the ravages of faction. And remember, we mm-hmm. go back to faction, and, and that's one of the things that they knew they could not prevent, they could only control its effects. And it's human nature. It is in human nature. We see it today, and we see politicians use that passion when they are trying to whip up fear, when they're trying to whip up divisiveness. Uh, We see them using passion to do that, and and uh, and we and and politicians and bureaucrats and and folks that do that are are trying to push an agenda to make something happen instead of looking at uh, with the constitution. It was trying to figure out a way to put in place a frame of government that would protect individuals' rights to go after their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that passion would never take the scepter, wrest the scepter away from reason. And that's why, that's one of the big reasons why we have the Senate. We divide it in two. First of all, when they looked at it, they said, you know, throughout history, lesson teaches us that the legislature will pull all of the powers eventually into its own vortex, impetuous vortex, they call it. And it will then control all of government. It will control all the other branches, even if you separate them by those parchment barriers. And that's why it had to be structured internally. And the first thing that they did was to split the legislature and to say, because it's so powerful, one of the first things we'll do, the first remedies, is we'll split it into two different branches, which have two different functions and are elected in two different ways, and so that, that will, it will mediate the power that they have. And so then they set the Senate up as a controlling one, the one that would not be elected every two years, but would be every six years. And remember, they would have five more years' experience, okay? So it wouldn't be 30 years. I mean, it wouldn't be 25 years like the House of Representatives. It would be 30 years. And they would have to be nine years a citizen of the United States. So those were the qualifications that they put in there to add that extra maturity and to give them six years so they could look at things, not just the things that would be the legislature that would be passed for a year or mm-hmm. two, but to look at programs that would go on for for development, maybe more than a year or two or three. And that's why they gave them six years. And they staggered the times that they would be coming into office 
in thirds so that it never would replace the whole the whole group and at that time the experience was in the house of representatives that every two years you replaced about 50 percent of the members and that wouldn't happen with the senate there would be more stability and and uh, that we'd be, we'd be looked at uh, with higher regard from the international community and okay. that was that was really important to them so they talk about the reasons for the senate and in this first uh, portion in number 62 they give four of the six reasons and i want to read these really quickly the improper legislation so the need for upper house is a security against first improper legislation second infirmity of faction that we Mm talked about before third ignorant legislation (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and fourth, the one that's really big, and it has quite a few subtitles to it, is the mutability in councils from frequent changes of members, mm-hmm. okay, and the dangers of such mutability. So if we talk about that, so that's the first four, and there are two more that will be talked about in number 63. And then we say that a Senate, as a second branch of the legislative assembly, distinct from and dividing the powers with the first must be in all cases a, a salutary check on the government. It doubles the security of the people by requiring the concurrence of two distinct branches, two distinct bodies and schemes of usurpation of perfidy, where the ambition or corruption of one would otherwise be sufficient. So it is to give that, that extra moderation to our legislature. And then the third, a good government implies two things. First, fidelity to the objective of government, which is the happiness of the people. And second, a knowledge of the means by which the objective can be best obtained. Some governments are deficient in both of these qualities. Most governments are deficient in the first one, fidelity to the people, the happiness of the people. I scruple not to assert that in American governments, too little attention has been paid to the last, which is the knowledge of the means by which it can be best obtained. The federal constitution avoids this error, and what merits particularly notice, it provides for the last in a mode which increases the security of the first. No. Um, that, you know, they they were really thinking, I don't know how they did it, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But anyway, so those were there. You know, I just want to mention one thing sure. here, and that is they deliberated these ideas, right? They fought. They, yes. And we have a movement in government today, uh, and you see it a lot in Colorado, where they talk about coming to consensus and you don't see that deliberation uh it can be at city council it can be county commissioner down at the legislature a lot of this work has been done behind closed doors with a consensus and then it becomes a rubber stamp and uh that is kind of antithetical to the american idea it's antithetical to what i just read a good government implies two things first fidelity to the objectives of government and second a knowledge of the means by which they can be best obtained. Now, what are the objectives of our government? We have two of them, the protection of the individual rights, and the second one was the promotion of the general welfare. Okay, let's hold that thought, Ben Martin. But again, that is what government was instituted, is to protect those rights 
and the general welfare. And that's not a welfare program. No, that, <laughs> that's the good of everybody. That's the good of everybody. That is right. So uh, this is Kim Munson. Uh, this is our Federalist Papers show. Uh, thank you to uh, the Harris family for their sponsorship of this. Uh, we're going to go to break. We have one more segment. Uh, there's so much information about this, but Ben Martin, it's great to have you here, and we'll be right back. Don't miss Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Join Kim Munson at Water's Edge Winery in Centennial or Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock. In Fort Collins, attend Vino and Veritas at Ginger and Baker. Kim Munson would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Loveland, Presidential Wealth Management Greenwood Village, Tina Francone with Straightforward Shooting, and Grand Lake U.S. Constitution Week for their generous support. Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Sign up today. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm going to get a scholarship. Welcome back. I am Kim Munson. This is our last segment. Uh, ben Martin is in studio. This is our Federalist Papers show. And uh, we're doing this in honor of Vino and Veritas, which is our study that we are doing on the Federalist Papers uh, over at Waters Edge Winery in Centennial down at Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock and up at Ginger and Baker in, uh, in Fort Collins. If you're interested in getting more information about that, you can email me at uh, Kim at com. So. Ben Martin, this is our last segment. A lot of information. We've been going through the the kind of the meat of the Federalist Papers regarding the legislature. We're talking about the Senate. So what else do we need to know? Well, we need to know. We talked about those first four reasons for government for the Senate to have the Senate in our in our Constitution and in our government. And so we talked about the first three of those. The last ones I talked about was the definition of good government implies first the fidelity to the objective of government, which is the happiness of the people, and a knowledge of the means to best affect the, the legislature. So we didn't talk about mutu- mutability, and that's really important, and I want to talk about that in here, but to let everyone know what that, uh, that means. It means that the laws do not change, that when we make a law, we have gone through all the circumspection to make sure it's a good law, we, and that's what the Senate was there for, to support the stability of our lawmaking of our government. You know, I feel like we've lost our way today. Yeah. Uh, and what's coming to mind with me is this Proposition CC that was referred by the state legislature <clears throat> to the ballot this year, which in essence would try to ch- uh, change the TABOR, which a uh, taxpayer's bill of rights, which is an amendment to the Constitution. Constitution yeah. And uh, what we're seeing is, is that many times legislatures and even the, at the federal level, they are trying to make laws that do not fit into this this scope of the Constitution. And so when they say a mutable law, they mean something that actually passes the muster of a constitutional test. And that can be anywhere from an ordinance at city council, I believe, every every ordinance, law, whatever. We need to take a look at what it meant in the Constitution and make sure that we are passing things that have the mutability to that. But 
But we have people that are passing laws that don't even pass the mustard. Right. Well, mutability was what they were trying to guard against because mutability destroys your commerce. It destroys people's confidence in their laws. So mutability means changing it? Changing Got it. Okay. Unreasonably quickly or for unreasonable reasons. And that's what you were talking about when you were talking okay. about this new thing uh, that, uh, that they're trying to put on the ballot right mm-hmm. now to do that. And so the effect of mutable policy well, they talk about mutability in public council arising from a rapid succession of new members sometimes. However qualified they may be, he points out, in the strongest manner, the necessity of some stable institutions in government. And that's what we're talking about with the Senate. The Senate was supposed to be a body of statesmen, really. And they were supposed to be the ambassadors from the states until Woodrow Wilson changed that. And, and, and that became an amendment to the Constitution yeah, to change how senators were elected, because in, in the Constitution, they're to be elected by the states. Right. The two branches of the legislature, one was to represent the people, the other one was to represent the states. And that was a compromise, and it was a good compromise to balance our government and to get the acceptance of all the states, that they would still have some equal representation. We talk about that in those characteristics of the Senate stability, and we talk about the equality of representation of the states in there. And and that is that is really important, and that was really important to having the Constitution ratified by the states also and the, the people of the states. And those, that amendment that you're talking about was uh, passed back in the early 1900s. Right. Uh, and it's one of the progressives progressive, called the progressive. It, and, the, and the other one was the income tax. The income tax. It came right. in at that time as well. It did. Okay. And it was a, it was a important change to the it, Constitution. It does. And it says, but a continual change of laws, even of good measure, is inconsistent with every rule of prudence and every prospect of success. That's what they thought about mutability. Okay. And that's why the Senate was set up to counter that. And it says, these are the things that, it, that we talk about with mutability. We forfeit respect and confidence of other nations. And it's marked by all prudent people as a speedy victim to his own folly. Neighbors will decline to connect their fortunes with his his fortune, and that few will seize the opportunity, a few will still seize the opportunity of making their fortunes from his. Every nation whose affairs betray a lack of wisdom and stability may be calculated on every loss which can be sustained from policy of wiser neighbors, wiser nations. And that's why mutability was looked at so poor, so badly and had to be had to be built in the some guardrails around guardrails around it to keep it from happening. And so and it's so he says here is another one. The internal effects of mutable mutable policy are still more calamitous. It poisons the blessings of liberty itself. It will be of little avail to the people that laws are made by men of their own choice. If the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read Uh and so incoherent that they cannot be understood. If they be repealed or revised before they are promulgated or undergo such incessant changes that no man who knows what the law is today can guess what it will be tomorrow. 
Law is defined to be a rule of action, but how can that be a rule which is little known and less fixed? Ben Martin. That's what speaks think to me. Think about today. I mean, think about the health care bill. Exactly. I mean, hundreds of pages. Right. And they're saying that, that everyday hardworking people should be able to understand these laws. And if they're not, if they're not, if they don't, and that's what he was talking about before, the neighbors who will, the guys that the talk that you were talking about, the PBIs, the interested mm-hmm. people, will have lawyers and everything to find out the the best way to get around those laws, and it'll take advantage of the common people that are working every day and don't have that. That is happening in Colorado right now. Exactly, and that's what this is. This one, number 63, speaks to me from the Senate's point of view, you know, the things that we should worry about. And 57, as I said, talks about what we should talk, what we should look for in the House of Representatives to guard against. So that's why these two bills, when I first started reading the Federalist Papers, these were two of my favorites because they spoke about what is happening today and they knew about it way back then. You know, an observation here is we talk about PBIs, politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties. You know, they never debate the Constitution. Mm-mm. Now what they try to do is say that it's just an old bunch of uh, bigoted white guys, slaveholders. And uh, we had Rob Nadelson on just recently, and he refuted all that. He has a very important piece in the Epic Times. Good. But you look at what you just said. There's wisdom in that. Absolute wisdom, yeah. Wow. Not knowledge that does not change. Well, and- we have about five minutes, so let's uh, let's make sure we hit what you want to Uh, Have our listeners here. The other part about that was I wanted to say was what prudent merchant will hazard his fortunes in any new branch of commerce? This is another point of mutability that we have to worry about when he knows not, but what his plans may be uh, rendered unlawful before they can actually be executed. So that's the impact of mutability on commerce. We've already talked about the mutability Mm -hmm. of respect and what it does to the individual people and what it does to other Mm -hmm. nations. This is what it does to our commerce. Mm-hmm. And if we don't know that and we can't tell what it will be tomorrow. So, well, and let's think about Senate Bill 181, which just passed this last uh, legislative session, was signed into law by the governor, which uh, it makes it very difficult in commerce for an industry, the oil and gas industry. And once again, the writers of the Constitution realize this could be a problem. It could be. And, and that's why they said, you know, we have to have government that is responsible Responsible Again, we talk about that, and we talk about that so much in the Federalist Papers, and has talked about responsibility being an American word, came from us. Mm-hmm. And so we go to this thing, the, one, the last one that I want to talk about, the powers of the Senate, and this is really important when we talk about how sometimes perfection can be the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what, you know, perfect can be the enemy of the good. And it says this, and this is what they talk about in number 65, which I think is important. And I'm going to pull this extract out of there. If mankind to resolve to agree in no institutions of government until every part of it had been adjusted to perfection, society would soon become a general scene of anarchy and the world a desert. Wow. We will therefore conclude this head with a view of the judicial character of the Senate. But that's so important. Do you know that, that our whole country would become a general scene of anarchy and the world a desert? We can't just 
hold off on legislation until we get it exactly perfect. Sometimes we have to put the good in there. Well, but the thing is, is with this legislation, all of these, again, ordinances and laws and rules and regulations, they need to be thought about and, and created with this whole idea of of our Constitution. And as you mentioned, that, that uh, to protect the rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness of every individual. And then for the common... The, the general welfare, and that means for everybody. That does not mean it's – general welfare doesn't work if you're using government policy to take one person's stuff to give it to another. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. It has to be good. It can't be good for Colorado and not good for Utah or Wyoming or Montana or, or Kansas. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be good for everybody, you know, so that means it has to be compromise. And uh, – this is this is one of the things that was said about our Constitution at the end by Benjamin Franklin when he went outside and he saw a lady and she asked him, what kind of government have you people, have you representatives given us, you delegates given us? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And that was, that was Elizabeth Powell, who was not just a woman walking by. She was a very prominent woman, and she was a wife of the former and the future mayor of the city. She was, she was a friend of George Washington. She was, she was quite a, a, you know, quite a lady. impressive person. Okay. And, and, it, and we talk about that. And, and Walter Isaacson wrote a great book on Benjamin Franklin. He said, when he was talking about that at the end, he said, I believe this great author and historian, uh, Walter Isaacson, described it best when he said that the words that Franklin said when he wrapped up the Constitutional Convention, he said... <clears throat> they were the most elegant words Franklin ever wrote, and perhaps the best ever written by anyone about the magic of the American system and the spirit of compromise that created it. Ben Martin, that is our quote for today. That is uh, something else. And, and you've served our country. You're a former Army Ranger, and you are a patriotic historian. And it's just such an honor to go through the uh, Federalist Papers with you here. And uh, thank you to the uh, Harris family for yes. bringing this forward. We hope you enjoy this. This is so important that we understand why we believe what we believe. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. Ben Martin, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America. And I don't want no one to cry. Tell them if I don't say